0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Kirstine McKenzie. Kirstine is a professional historian and she's the author of The Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Union, 1643 to 63, just published by Routledge. Kirstine, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed.
0: It's great to have you here. Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself before we talk about your
1: book? I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Aberdeen. I did history and politics. And then I went on to do a PhD in history. Um, but I've always been fascinated with the Stuart period from a very, very young age since I was at school. So, But when I was young, I was very much a Cromwellian. I was very much pro-Oliver Cromwell. And then when I was an undergraduate I I attended uh, the Three Kingdoms course at the University of Aberdeen, run by Professor Alan McInnes, and that started to change my perspective on Oliver Cromwell and it gave me more a wider perspective across the Three Kingdoms. So so that's kind of sort of where it where the Three Kingdoms perspective started.
0: Now, what's the background um, to the book itself, Christine?
1: Well, the, the background to the book itself is that it emerged from a PhD that was submitted at the University of Aberdeen in 2008. And it subsequently has evolved over a period of 10 years. It involved extensive research across archives in England, Scotland, and Ireland. So I had to travel about. And during my traveling about to all these archives, again, I was made aware of how. Different Scotland, England, and Ireland are in many ways, but also the similarities between between the countries as well. So that all fed into the research as well. In that sense, also as well, I decided to explore Presbyterian Church government from a three kingdoms perspective uh, in the 1640s and the in the 1650s. Initially, when I Talk to people about what I kind of wanted to do. Um, The response I got was, you're quite brave to do this. It's quite a lot. Some people were encouraging me to stay with Scotland. Some people were encouraging me to focus on Ireland. Initially, it was like, well, you know, you're just a beginning PhD student. You sure you should be looking at it from a Three Kingdoms perspective. But I read the Song, League and Covenant. And what is apparent in that document is they keep mentioning the Three Kingdoms all the time in the document and I thought well this can't just be some meaningless phrase it has to mean something to the covenanters to the covenanted interest in England and in Ireland as well so that's where the idea of the three kingdoms came from was looking at something covenant and thinking well the term the three kingdoms must actually mean something so that's that's kind of why I decided to to um, explore the Covenanters and the Covenanted interests from a Three Kingdoms basis.
0: Listeners who are familiar with early modern British history will likely be aware of the controversy surrounding uh, the Three Kingdoms perspective or the new British history, as it's sometimes called, uh, a perspective that tries to put together narrative histories or analytical histories of Scotland, England and Ireland into a single Account. It's often discussed, sometimes theoretically, but hardly ever achieved. One of the most remarkable things about your book, Kirstine, is the fact that you have achieved this. You set out to do a Three Kingdoms analysis and you do it really well. And the book is probably now one of the models of how that Three Kingdoms approach might be adopted. What did you learn about English covenanting or even Irish covenanting as you adopted this approach?
1: Well, this, this, these elements were the surprise for me during my PhD journey, if you like. Um, for people who are just starting out on their PhD listening to this, it's sort of when you start a PhD, you don't know where sources are going to take you. You don't know where the information is going to take you. You don't know uh, what you're going to find. It It is a journey and it's a journey where you you learn along the way. And what surprised me was the the fact that Presbyterianism in the 1650s, particularly in Ulster, just expands. Um, You know, we're often told in a a strictly English context, and I, I think I've revised this as well in a lot of the a lot of the textbooks, you you often hear that the Presbyterians were a failure. The Songling Covenant was a failure. As soon as the Cromwellian Conquest happens, the Songling Covenant fails and that's it, you know. Um, But the, the two surprises, as I said, that I had was that the Ulster Presbyterian Church just grew and grew and grew throughout the 1650s. But also, I uncovered an English classical Presbyterian revival in the mid 1650s, um, through my analysis of s- separating Richard Baxter's religious associations, which emerged in the 1650s as well, from the strictly classical, English classical Presbyterian associations, which emerged in the 1650s. So that was the two surprises for me. I wasn't so surprised about the Scottish Kirk resisting the Cromwellian occupation. I knew that that would probably be the case. But the the two things that did really, really surprise me was the growth of both Presbyterianism and Ulster during the 1650s and English Classical Presbyterianism in the 1650s, which shows that despite the emergence of Cromwell that Presbyterianism is not finished with the Cromwellian conquest. In fact, it's just um, it it just continues to 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 grow. Um,
0: as you worked through your project, Christine, did you work out why the Solemn League and Covenant mattered to so many of the people who were interested in this?
1: Yeah, um, this this was another interesting aspect as well um, because. It's often seen as a religious document um, and uh, people focus on the religious aspects, which is is fair enough, which is obviously a big part of it um, as well. Um, But it it encompassed military aspects, which we all know about, um, uh, uh, religious aspects, but also the idea of order and discipline within society. Um a sort of, the Songling Covenant was a symbol of stability when seeming chaos started to emerge during the 1650s. Um it was, it became a symbol of how the natural order should be. Um so from that point of view, that, that's another thing that, that surprised me on my journey doing a PhD was I discovered that Songling Covenant was more than just a religious document. Was more than just a framework for Anglo-Scottish cooperation through the Westminster Assembly and the Committee of Both Kingdoms. It was actually a bedrock, um, a shining light, if you if you like, within the darkness of the chaos or the seeming chaos of the Cromwellian uh, political and religious establishment. Now you, um,
0: you mentioned there, Kirstine, the political aspects of the document, and one of the things that. I suppose I should have known but didn't know until I read your book, was that while the Solemn League and Covenant uh, uh, outlined very specific roles for the English and Scottish parliaments, it didn't really include any role for the Irish parliament. So it's it's a document for Three Kingdom Reformation, but it doesn't describe the Three Kingdoms as exactly equal, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. Um, the Irish Parliament is, is uh, as, as Patrick Little has already um, written about, the Irish Parliament was left out of uh, the, that discussion in that sense. Um, maybe it was part of the, the, the negotiations all maybe tied up with the 1641 Rebellion with the, the Scottish army going into Ulster. Then, of course, the English Parliament itself as well with the Adventurers Act um, and all that. I think it's, it's definitely tied up in, in all of that. Um, and that the, the Covenanters are quite happy for Ireland to be seen as an English dependency. Um, the interesting thing is, um, Patrick Adair's diary is written retrospectively. And in his diary, he does mention the Irish Parliament, which is curious. Now, I had this in my PhD thesis, but I edited it out for the book um because it's quite confusing. And I, I just took it as a retrospective comment, which was that he felt that in the early 1650s, there should have been an Irish Parliament. Now, I thought that that was curious, but I thought to myself that's well, probably retrospective as to when he was writing his account of Presbyterianism in Ireland, because by the time he was doing that, he, obviously um, the Irish Parliament was back up and running. So I just took that as a case of, you know, um, based on the evidence at the actual time, that that uh, many um, Presbyterians in Ireland didn't seem seem too fussed that there wasn't an Irish Parliament. I, I took that as as a retrospective comment on on what was going on in the 1650s. So I, I didn't really take it with any seriousness um, subsequently, but I just thought I'd mention that because it is interesting that he does mention that in the diary, but as I say, I think it's a retrospective looking back comment rather than something he may have felt at the time.
0: Hmm. Now, your story begins in 1643, which is, Five years after the chaos in Scotland begins with the riots in 1638, two years after the chaos in Ireland in the rebellion, in mm-hmm. which maybe twelve thousand people lost their lives in 1641, and it's one year after the beginning of civil war in England when the king and the parliament uh, take up arms against each other. 1643, as you explained to us, is the year in which the Solemn League and Covenant is signed between the Scottish and English parliaments. And it's the beginnings of that transnational alliance uh, against the king, although it may not be exactly against the king. What's the role of the Westminster Assembly in all of this? Uh,
1: the role of the Westminster Assembly was to produce, uh, 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 was to produce a liturgy, um, not just for England. This is the interesting part. It was an Anglo-Scottish liturgy. So this liturgy, uh, that was, that was, um, designed and written by committees in the Westminster Assembly, um, was for both kingdoms. It was an Anglo-Scottish liturgy. And it was designed, um, as I say, for both the Scottish Kirk and for, um, the English class- classical system that, um, was being legislated at the time. Um, The interesting thing about the Anglo Scottish liturgy is that it's it's probably the most famous um, in the Book of Psalms, but it was a joint Anglo Scottish effort. I mean, drafts of the Psalms were sent up to Aberdeen for John Rowe to look at, he sent them back down. But what is interesting is that these documents and this process of bringing about this liturgy should not be seen in isolation. In fact, it is a reaction against Cromwell and the independence at the time, you can actually see and I think I argue this in my monograph, you can see with Cromwell and the independence every time there's a hard push for liberty of conscience against obviously the Anglo-Scottish Alliance within the Westminster Assembly. The Anglo-Scottish Alliance responds by speeding this Anglo-Scottish liturgy up and getting it finished as, as quickly as they can. So you can see a cause and effect between what's going on and how liber- the, the Cromwell's quest for liberty of conscience and the pressure from the independence on the Assembly is actually bringing about the Anglo-Scottish litur- liturgy, um, because obviously one's reacting against the other. So that's the importance of the Westminster Assembly in the sense of what it produced. Um, but also it has to be recognised, about what it produced under that kind of pressure. Um, what I probably, perhaps, controversially argue in my in my monograph, and the reason why I do so is because I, I I I didn't necessarily take what the Presbyterians said at face value, but I wanted to tell their story from their perspective. So from their perspective. The independents and Cromwell, although traditionally we see Cromwell and the independents as people who advocate liberty of conscience, some people have called it toleration. We think it's a nice thing. Um, In fact, looking at it from the Anglo-Scottish covenanted perspective, Cromwell is actually the troublemaker. The independents are the troublemaker. They're breaking the rules of the assembly. They're breaking the rules of the House of Commons. They're laying waste to to order in in the Westminster Assembly. Um, so it's a different perspective from a widely different perspective as to what we ch- see in the traditional narratives about the Westminster Assembly and the Independents fighting this this sort of I guess in traditional narrative bigoted. Presbyterian Alliance trying to stop toleration and liberty of conscience, if you look at it from the Presbyterian perspective um Cromwell is is nothing but a troublemaker, and the independents are are dangerous um, so in that sense um, perhaps controversially i i, I I've turned it upside down. Um, which uh, probably will upset some people, but that's, that's what history is for. It's for challenging, uh, put, putting forward challenging perspectives and ideas. So, Good,
0: good. Well, certainly, whether it's controversial or not, it's certainly true that by the end of the 1640s, uh, the independence and the Cromwellian army that supported them was very much in the ascendant, wasn't it? And the Presbyterians, yeah. though they may have dominated the Westminster Assembly, were increasingly outmanoeuvred in military mm-hmm. political terms. How did they respond mm-hmm. to that? Did they just fall back upon themselves or did they set out some ambitious plan to grow?
1: Well, they, uh, as I've said, within the Westminster Assembly itself, they created the Anglo-Scottish Liturgy in response to pressure from the Independents. But if you look at the Presbyterian Church structure out uh, with that, what you find is... In England, the, the Presbyterian church structure um, continues to grow. So initially, the operational areas are in London and Manchester. Um, by 1647, there's another classes just outside of Manchester called the Bury Classes. But then the Manchester Classes, interestingly, Ordains people for Shropshire, Yorkshire, and even ordains Scottish candidates for the ministry, which shows you how the two church systems could actually work together, as in the Scottish Kirk and the Manchester classes. Some Scottish candidates actually were ordained in Manchester.
0: And why why would they have gone south for that ordination, Kirstein?
1: Well, I think they were looking for parishes to be to be settled in parishes in 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 England. But I just find it interesting how they are willing to ordain Scottish candidates for the for the for the ministry. It's not a case of well you had you were educated at the University of Glasgow, you're tied to the Scottish Kirk. This is the English system, but in fact they welcome the Scottish ministers in in the, the Manchester classes and they ordain them the same way that they would ordain uh, a a minister from from England. So you can see how the, the systems the Anglo-Scottish relationship, you know, comes into play there. Um, but what's really quite important about the Manchester classes is that it's so successful that it throws out spores, um, and many of these spores end up in Shropshire and Cheshire. And in fact, it's so successful that by uh, 1647, there's actually a new classes in Shropshire called the Shropshire classes and um, it, it's very successful indeed and that's where Presbyterianism in the West Midlands starts to take root. Um, you've also got the London uh, classes. Um, unfortunately um, we don't have all, I mean the records for the London classes are quite comprehensive if you look at Dr Elliot Brannan's, um thesis on the London Presbyterians. But I looked at the fourth London classes, just as an example, and you'll find that the fourth London classes, again, like the Manchester classes, throws out spores, if, if you want to call it that, of ordained ministers, not just in London, but in Lincolnshire, in Devon, um, all over, all over uh, England. So they take on the mantle of the Westminster Assembly in a sense. And they continue to ordain ministers, Presbyterian ordained ministers, and throw these spores out. And some of them actually then later evolve into actual uh, English English classes or the classical Presbyterian system in, in various areas in England. So I thought that that was really, really interesting. And again, I admire their perseverance. It's not the case of, oh, woe is me, maybe, you know, Things didn't turn out the way that we wanted them to. Cromwell destroyed our plans. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. They just picked themselves up. They persevered and they just continued to work as hard as they could to um, allow Presbyterianism in England to grow. There's also a similar situation happening in Ulster in 1646, which again is being driven by similar. A similar sort of attitude that there is in England. In England there's a lot of grassroots petitioning which allows the, the uh, Manchester classes to grow um, and the same thing is happening in Ulster. There's lots of grassroots petitioning and the church expands in Ulster in, Ulster in 1646 as ministers come from Scotland And yes, as I've said in my book, the the supply of ministers in 1646 wasn't perfect. There was a lot of problems um, between Scotland and Ulster at that time, which meant the supply of ministers wasn't really forthcoming. I think the General Assembly in Scotland was a bit um, reticent of letting some of the ministers go. But um, still, the the church grew, and it was due in part to the support of Grassroots petitioning, and the landed elite. So, in that sense, I take the side of uh, Robert Armstrong, who has argued that instead of Presbyterianism in Ireland being what we call um, Presbyterianism imperialism, like it's the English Parliament or or the Scots uh, using their army in Ulster to impose it from above, there's actually a lot of um, willingness on behalf of the um, settlers in Ulster, particularly Scottish settlers of course, who have Presbyterian ministers in the province. Um, And this again comes out later in the 1650s which we will obviously discuss later on.
0: Now one of the things that your book shows, and it's really beautiful illustrations, um, your book provides maps which show the expansion of these um, classical Presbyterian um, structures uh, over, over the course of the later 1640s and 1650s, one of the things you show is that um, the, not only individual congregations are being formed, but presbyteries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do how do how does the Scottish Presbyterian model relate to the English Presbyterian model? You make a very careful distinction between those two models in your book.
1: Yeah, um, I I think the distinction in my book initially comes from discussions in the Westminster Assembly, and it's often something that's repeated by many English historians, that somehow the Scots forced their austere brand of Presbyterianism on the poor English, who were forced to, to go along with what the Scots and the Westminster Assembly wanted. Um, When exploring this for myself and obviously viewing it from uh, the Scottish perspective, if you like, um, I found that it was somewhat different that the the, the Scottish members of the Westminster Assembly realised that their, their role was limited. In fact, they were invited to become full members of the Assembly, which the Scottish members actually turned down. And the Scottish members... Make a point of saying that England has its own variety of Presbyterianism and they're quite happy for England to have its own variety of Presbyterianism. Um, I, and so uh, my perspective on that has changed as well. That the, this idea that the Scots have come down to London to impose their religion on, um, the, the English Parliament is, in in my view, wrong. I think they, they genuinely encouraged, uh, the Scots genuinely encouraged the, the English to grow their own system. And I, I think that that is, you can see that in my book, that, that they have encouraged um, the proliferation of English classical Presbyterianism, not a brand of, of the Scottish Kirk in England. Um, so yeah, I, I I do think that there is a there is a distinct difference between the two forms of Presbyterianism.
0: Now to push a little bit forward into the 1650s, Kirsteen, um you, you remind us that Presbyterians in England, Scotland, and Ireland have to deal with the consequences of defeat. Cromwellian armies have um, conquered Scotland; they're in possession of Ireland, mm-hmm. and Presbyterians have to pick up and figure out what to do next. Um, what kinds of responses do Presbyterians, especially in Scotland, give to the realities of Cromwellian occupation?
1: Well, um, they're, they're very angry indeed, as you can imagine. Now, when you get to the, the, the uh, park in the 1650s, a lot is made of what's called the Protestant Resolutionary Crisis, which was a division between... Uh, two factions of the Kirk, uh, one Kirk, uh, one faction of the Kirk, sorry, the resolutioners, believed that the king was sincere. This is King Charles II in his uh, pledges to the covenant and they were willing to compromise with the royalists. However, the protesters, on the other hand, didn't trust Charles II at all, thought that his pledges to the covenant were a fudge. Um, and and, uh, weren't very, very happy about it. So when people talk about Scottish Kirk in the 1650s, they talk about this division between protesters and resolutioners. Ironically, the thing that they were united on was the dislike of the Cromwellian conquest. And what I found interesting, and, and this is what really grabbed my attention in the first year of my PhD, and I've spoken about this elsewhere, was that I was looking at Archibald Johnston of Warriston's comments on the Cromwellian conquest of Scotland. And this is back in 2001. And Archibald Johnston of Warriston is a protester. And he's going on about how countries are sovereign entities, how they have a right to natural self-defence, how Scotland has its own law, how the Cromwellian invasion is illegal. Because as far as he is concerned, there is no. As far as he is concerned, Scotland is no threat to England at this moment in time. So there is no reason for Cromwell to come up and invade the country. Mm. And at the time when I was reading all of this, and bear in mind Archibald Johnston is a lawyer, so it is all in legal speak about the illegality of the Cromwellian invasion. The debates over the invasion of Iraq were going on. And the ironic thing was I could see similarities in the arguments with them as well about sovereign states, about, you know, justifying invasion, whether it's legal, is it illegal, is it is it right or wrong. And that's what really grabbed me when I started my PhD. And I think, you know, historians write their history in the context of the time that they're in. And I don't think if if As I've said before elsewhere, I don't think if that was going on in current times in the background with the invasion of Iraq, etc., I think I wouldn't have taken Worson's comments so seriously. Because I went, oh, well, you know, maybe he's he's got a point, but it was just funny to see the replication of the arguments at at that point. So, as I say, that that really did grab me. when I started my PhD, that was one of the first things I came across and it, it fascinated me.
0: I suppose the irony <laughs> there is that Warriston himself ends up working for the Cromwellians as part, as part of their yeah. administration in London. Uh, yeah, although but, what, what happens to him after the restoration uh, is pretty horrific. How did other Scottish Presbyterians or Covenanters elsewhere respond to the, the, the restoration of Charles II?
1: Well, the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the restoration of Charles II, uh, to begin with, a lot of them were quite excited, perhaps except for the protesters who knew that because of their um, resistance or dislike, open dislike of the monarchy, they, they kind of sort of knew that they were maybe a bit on a sticky wicket. But worse than blessed, he, he tries his best to try and sort of say that, you know, he, he, he thinks the monarchy is not, as, you know, he's been misunderstood. He didn't think he'd, You know, the monarchy wasn't as bad as people are saying that he thinks that it it is. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, they're quite excited to begin with, even across the kingdoms. They're quite excited about the king coming back. And I think it's because at this point in time, they're hoping for initially anyway, um, a form of covenanted monarchy. And then rapidly it, it, it disintegrates. Um, because what happens is in Ireland in particular, only a minority end up being for the covenant. Um, everyone else falls away um and, and, and is brought into line. Um James Sharp goes to Breda and then there's an English Presbyterian contingent that goes to Breda to meet with the king. But they're they're unsuccessful with that. Um and it just rapidly, rapidly rapidly disappears, because it's clear that Charles II, when he comes back, what he wants to do is reassert the royal prerogative, and in doing so, when he does that, he outlaws the covenant, he uh, outlaws um, Presbyterian church government, he restores the established faith, and in effect makes uh, the Presbyterians in the three kingdoms, and those who Will not conform to the established church, basically outlaws and and, and traitors um, so so they go from a position of hope that the covenant be restored and then they end up being uh, ostracized and pushed out to the side and are, are seen as outlaws and traitors as the laws begin to change by you know the covenant being illegal and etc et etc. Cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, Kirstine, you've written a wonderful book, The Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Union, 1643-63, to just published by Routledge in the Routledge Research and Early Modern History series. Uh, thanks so much for taking time to come onto the show and talk about it.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Before you go, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Um, I'm working on a, a project for Routledge. It's a... Um, a, a teaching volume on book history um we've got some fantastic contributors um to the volume and it's it's basically acting as an introduction to uh, book history in the stuart period um for undergraduates and top postgraduates um in the discipline
0: that sounds wonderful look forward to seeing it when it comes out but for now kirsten thanks so much for your time take care And thanks everyone else for listening in today. Uh, I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network podcast.